Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you this morning. Very good. My name is Ben, and I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting today, I hope you feel welcome. We have been in a series in the gospel according to Mark for some time, and today we will be in chapter 2, and we're going to look at the first pericope there, the first story, the first 12 verses. This is a very, very familiar story. I remember uh, learning about, this is probably one of the five most memorable stories I remember from Sunday school as a kid, digging through a rooftop and letting a dude down on ropes into the presence of Jesus in a crowded, packed room. It makes for a great picture. It makes for a great, memorable story. But sometimes I wonder if we miss the main point of it. We all know that old story from Aesop's fables. You guys remember reading these when you were a kid, or maybe you're reading them to your grandkids now. I love Aesop's fables. And there's that very famous story, the tortoise and the hare. And, you know, they are, they are two woodland animals who find themselves at odds. Uh, the tortoise is not so stoked about the way that the hare is very boastful. This rabbit is fast. He's agile and speedy, and he wants everybody to know it. The tortoise gets a little bit annoyed by this, and so he says, why don't we race, bro? And so they set up this race, and we kind of know how it goes. Rabbit blasts off the starting line like Hussein Bolt. He's charging ahead, and the tortoise just kind of meanders along as tortoises are prone to do. And uh, the rabbit gets so far down the road, he says, by golly, I've got this one in the bag. Might as well take a little nappy nap. So he lays down for some sleep. And then when he wakes up, it's the most rude awakening because the tortoise, apparently during his restful slumber, has surpassed him and now won the race. Now, what would you think if I said about that story, if I said, what this story teaches us is that you shouldn't take naps in the middle of races? <laughs> you know, that's a true statement, isn't it? I think that's true. Uh, I mean, if your goal is to win anyway, yeah? So we know that's a true statement. It certainly is one of the lessons in the story. We might walk away with our gaze fixed upon our personal racing and napping habits and say, man, I have been napping too much during my races. That's the problem. Thank you, story, for teaching me my problem. I hope my naps aren't costing me the gold medal, you know? I don't think, though, that that was the main point that Aesop was getting at in his fable. Our passage today, then, is notorious for producing this kind of a misinterpretation. We're going to see four men who lower a paralyzed man down through a roof, and we sometimes say, man, this story is about the incredible faith of those men. And then we walk away with our gaze fixed upon our own personal level of faith. And we wonder, do I have that kind of faith that I would do something like that? Is my faith strong enough to save me like it was with this guy? I want to suggest to you this morning that the point of Mark chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 is not really about your personal faith, how faithful we are. So I want to ask, what is Mark trying to help us see here? What is he getting at? So I think we should turn right to the text. Let's read it, 
and really be looking at the main point, not just a small point, which is probably true and certainly demonstrable in the text, but what's the real thrust? What's the punch here? What's he getting at? So pick it up with me in Mark chapter 2. We will read this profound story. Verse 1, Mark 2. When Jesus returned to Capernaum, Several days later, so this is right after the leper healing scenario, a few days after that, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. And they couldn't bring him into Jesus because of the crowd. So they dug a hole in the roof above his head. Now, just pause for a second. Imagine a flat roof, you know. They're up on this roof above Jesus' head. They probably have to dig through some tile, maybe. At least a lot of earth, probably twigs. And it wouldn't have been all that difficult. It'd be a lot harder to punch through one of our roofs today. But it would have made a heck of a mess. Heck of a mess down below. So you got this packed house and Jesus in the middle preaching and all of a sudden dirt and dust and sticks and all that stuff starts falling down on you while he's talking. So it's a pretty interesting scene. You imagine when the first fist punches down through the roof, you know, and some dude looks down, you're looking up. All right, so here we are. They finally rip the roof apart far enough to get a full laying down human being, you know, that's a big hole in the roof. Hopefully it was not similar to Portland climates. You know what I'm saying. And uh, they lower him down. They lowered the man down on this mat right in front of Jesus. Verse 5, he says, Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. And some of the teachers of the religious law were sitting there, and they thought to themselves, What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, and so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I'm going to prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man, and he said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, he grabbed his mat, and he walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed, and they praised God, exclaiming, We have never seen anything like this before. We've never seen anything like this before. It's a cool story, isn't it? There's a huge clue here. Rather than being invited by Mark to examine our personal individual faith and whether we've made it strong enough somehow, I think we're instead invited to look very closely at who? Jesus. However great that one guy was, however gracious Mother Teresa might have been, however likable Bono is to you, nobody has ever encountered anybody like Jesus. 
These guys were living in a context where they had witnessed miraculous healings before. That's not new. They're living in a context where they had radical teachers coming through town, cynics and wandering teachers with disciples following them. That's not new. Something about Jesus was so radically different that they said, we've never seen anything like this before. This is insane. This was different. Jesus somehow, and I think Mark invites us to peer into the mystery a little bit, somehow the way Jesus was hanging out with these people, what he was doing and saying, went deeper. It went deeper, it went further, it was different. Like he was opening their eyes to a new reality. He was proclaiming a new reality, wasn't he? The kingdom. He's opening their eyes to this new reality. And this reality is something that was, and I think it still is, worth hoping for. And I think they caught a taste of that hope as they watched and listened. Wow, this is different. Clearly, faith is a part of the story. So hopefully you're not hearing me say that, eh, this has nothing to do with faith. It, it definitely does. This is only one of many New Testament examples of Jesus' tying the strength of a person's faith to the gracious action of God. You see it all over. He'll talk with people and he'll say, boy, you've got strong faith. Your faith is stronger than anybody I've seen in Israel. So he looks at people's faith. He comments on it. It seems to correlate in some way to what he does. But in the same way that the tortoise and the hare is not a story about how or when to nap, the lowering paralytic and the Savior, if you will, this story is not about our faith. It has everything to do with the faithfulness of Jesus. We've never seen anything like this before. And even more specifically, his forgiveness. His forgiveness. I think you can see, just as we think this way and read it now, that is the core of this story. Jesus' faithfulness, Jesus' forgiveness, and what he's doing. Now, when we talk about forgiveness, I think we have to take a little bit of a... Um, we've got we to do a little detour here and think about forgiveness in our world today and in our own hearts and minds and in our lives because I think that forgiveness is something that's it's, it's tied to sinfulness, isn't it? And it's strikes me as I observe our world that the gap between good and evil is growing smaller and smaller. And in some ways, it's being confused. Things that once were very evil are now actually virtuous and good. Activities that we can engage in, thoughts we can have, things we can do that were once understood to be destructive are now actually wonderful and worthy of pursuit. And so we kind of live in this world where forgiveness begs the question, forgiveness for what? Not that long ago, you could approach somebody and you could say to them, hey man, you and I, we're sinners. We're sinners here and we need forgiveness, something fierce. And the response would probably be something like, man, yeah, I know it. I do need forgiveness. I don't know that that was that long ago. You, you could actually talk that way. There was almost an understanding that I did indeed have guilt. Today, I think the response to that same question, boy, we are sinful, is yeah, 
Yeah, I'm all kinds of jacked up. So are you. So is everybody. So what? That's just the way it is. And so there's an acknowledgement in some cases, but it's not really that big of a deal. Who cares? In other cases, it's, what are you talking about? I don't do anything wrong. I've been taught to sort of create your own reality, and within your reality, you're not doing anything wrong. So don't tell me I've got a broken problem. I'm sinful. I think it's going to continue going that way. So we kind of say, if people don't feel sinful, if they don't feel guilty, then what is forgiveness about? Why would Jesus appeal to us, I can forgive you? Let's not react, though, and let's carefully respond to this cultural sort of scenario that we're in. And I was, it just, it struck me really hard this week. I was watching the news and uh, watching these clips of the funnel cloud that touched down in Manzanita. You guys saw some news stories about the, these pounding storms out on the coast. And this little Manzanita town got hit really hard. Some trees went down, some people were missing for some time, a couple buildings got really, really wrecked. And I felt something as I watched that story. I'm sure you did as well. I felt something uh, that I feel often when I watch those kind of stories. I felt guilty, almost. I felt, man, I wish there was something I could do. And then I thought about why there was nothing I could do. And then I thought, well, I could send money, but I'm not going to. I'm greedy. I could go out there and help rebuild stuff, but I'm not going to. I have to stay home and care for my wife. She had surgery on Tuesday and can't even walk. I'm selfish, and I'm just thinking about my own family and not other people's families. And then I thought about Haiti and Hurricane Matthew and hundreds, thousands of people, homes destroyed and ravaged and wrecked without power, some still. Then I started, just started thinking more about what I continue to think about, which is all of these stories. Haiti, you don't have to stay there. We can go to tsunamis. We can go to earthquakes, all of these things. And every time that I watch them, I think, oh, I should be doing more. I'm not enough. It's a really burdensome sort of guilt. It's not like I sinfully caused the hurricane, but all of the reasons that I can't be there to help cause me to reflect upon myself in a very negative way. Pictures from Syria, Iran, Iraq, Egypt, all that region, Palestine, Israel. You see the blood and the mayhem, and they say, I gotta send money, I gotta do something, I feel guilty. Economic collapse in Greece. Hunger, thirst, sickness, disease, corruption, all of these things all around us, these broken systems, and what do you feel when you look at these realities? Well, there are several multi-billion dollar industries that have formed because they know exactly how you feel, guilty. And some of these industries are driving, are fueled by your guilt. I think to myself, I should be doing more. Then I remind myself, man, I can barely teach my children the ways of God and provide for my family in this world. That's hard enough to do Monday through Friday. How can I solve all of these other problems? And then I feel guilty. And I hear some theological lawyer somewhere saying, you're just justifying yourself, Ben, which is bad. You're bad. You're guilty. You're not enough. You're not doing enough. And then my heart says, we should be doing more. We have to be doing more. 
or the church, the church should be doing more. It doesn't do enough. That's why we have problems in the world, because we're not doing enough. We're guilty. We're ashamed. And then I feel the guilt coming from the world. I feel the guilt burdened uh, on my shoulders coming even from within the church. I feel that guilt coming from our own nation. And nothing temporarily eases the pain of guilt like throwing some money or throwing a shipment of material products at people. And so I do that. I cut a check. So we write a check and we change the channel. Feeling discouraged often, lost, could we say paralyzed? It's just too much. It's too much. You see, when Adam and Eve first ignored God, which is sin, to just disregard God, to ignore what he says, when they first did this, the immediate feeling that they had was guilt and shame. I don't know exactly why, you know, how it was in that sort of first human being relationship with God. I would almost expect that after doing something wrong and being shown that you did something wrong, you would say, oh, geez, <laughs> how was I supposed to know? I didn't know. But they did know, and they felt guilt, and they felt shame. When we harm or we wrong somebody who loves us deeply, we don't feel good about that. And so all sin, I think, is essentially harming or ignoring or doing wrong to someone who loves us deeply, and that's our Creator, our good, good, good Father. This is, this is who we harm when we sin. And as much as we may try to eradicate guilt from the equations of life, we can't. Whether it is the harm that we do to our own parents or to our own children or to our own church or to ourselves, the sins we commit against our neighbors, ourselves, or fellow citizens, we see this failure and this failure leads to hopelessness and we recognize that this brokenness in the world we're implicated in in some way, some profoundly deep yet unknowable complex way. And it leads to this sense of hopelessness. I think it leads to two things, hopelessness and legalism. I'm never enough. I know for a fact that every one of you in this room, and me included, often feels that. I am not enough. I can't do this. That leads to hopelessness and shame. I am ashamed of myself, therefore, because I'm not enough. I cannot solve all of these things. Or it leads to legalism, which is like this. When I do this action, I wear my tie or I give my tithe or I say this word or I make sure I never fill in the blank, whatever. Whenever I do this action or I follow this rule, I feel like I've made up for my wrongdoing a little bit. And that feels really good. And so now I want to hold everyone accountable to those same actions so that I feel a little bit less guilty, mostly because I can look at how everybody's not doing what I've done and then they're lesser and I'm better. And that helps to assuage that feeling of guilt for a moment. But it doesn't go away. We all know that. Sin is like a permanent record. We feel it deep in the core of our soul. It's like a scar 
It's this warning sign carved into my soul that says, do not mess this up. Otherwise, it will be over for you. It'll be done. And so there's an anxiety that, that stems out of it. I wonder sometimes if this is the reason that we see such a robust and growing acceptance for television addiction, for apathy toward others, and for insatiable activism. TV helps me escape. I can, even for just a little while, step out from underneath that you're not enough pressure and just relax for a second and not have to think about it. Apathy toward others. Well, if I can embrace a sort of life that says, who cares about others? That's their problem, you know? Then I can sort of navigate myself away from the waters of guilt. Ah, that's their deal. I've got nothing to do with that. But deep inside, we still feel like we are. Insatiable activism. If I raise enough awareness, I can always find people who don't care enough. People who aren't part of the solution, and so they're part of the problem. I can always do that, and then I can feel a little bit less guilty, like my life can go on. I think if we look around the world and we say, well, morality is being changed, so it feels like guilt is just going by the wayside, I think right now you can all say, <laughs> it's actually not. It's as vibrant and powerful of an oppressor as ever. It's just different now. The truth is that no matter how many fig leaves we tie around our waist, we still feel guilty and ashamed. And I'm not saying necessarily that that's bad, okay? It's just what happens when you sin against God. Take a breath of air, you have more oxygen in your bloodstream. Take a breath of water, <laughs> that doesn't bode well for your lungs. Try to sin... It doesn't feel good. Guilt and shame are part of what happens. So it's not as though, oh, just don't think about that at all and make yourself feel better. That's not what I'm suggesting. What I am suggesting, though, is that we all feel it, even if we try to deny it deep inside of our core, and that is because we're sinful. We come to the table, every single one of us in this room. Guilt and shame are part of our reality now. And they help us discern when you feel really guilty and shameful, you know, stop. <laughs> Don't keep doing that. It's helping you to discern. Yeah, that's not a good way to roll. But when it gets into our identity and it causes us to be hopeless and it causes us to be legalist and insatiably activist or escapist, when, when it's doing that, it has lost its quality of helping us discern now, and it has taken root in our soul where the kingdom of God should be taking root, where the truth that Jesus came to proclaim should be taking root. And then he says this to the paralytic, I forgive your sins. So let's go back to Mark a little bit here. You might say, well, Pastor Ben, I just read these 12 verses with you, and there's nothing in these passages that say that the man felt guilty about anything. It just says they cut a hole in the roof and lowered him down, and then Jesus said what he did. I don't, I don't think the man felt guilty. Well, just think about this. All through the Old Testament, even we see in the New Testament, the people of God have often associated sickness and death with sin. 
It's just we associate sin with sickness because sin is a corruption and so is sickness. So as he comes in as this paralyzed man, everybody in the room is looking at him, and I'm sure some were thinking to themselves, well, what did this guy do that made him get paralyzed? Must be a terrible sin. Maybe it was. I don't know. But Mark isn't interested in telling us any of that. But we do know that the picture that he was showing everybody by being paralyzed was a picture of brokenness and corruption. Sin's not far behind then. And so when Jesus says, I forgive you of your sins, it maybe wasn't as abrasive as we might think. In every case, it's understood that sin is somehow part of all of this corruption, whether it's personal or global. And I think we know deep down that this is why we often feel guilty. But Mark has already very subtly introduced the idea of a new world, hasn't he? He's already said this in the whole first chapter in different ways about this coming into the world, the Son of Man, this Christ, the Savior, is entering into the world. And in the opening chapter of Mark, he gives us a picture of Jesus that looks like this force of ultimate power who has come to invite his neighbors into the life that he has, to live with him, to work with him, to create a new kingdom of life in the midst of a death-ridden world. So when I read this passage and I visualize this man being lowered down into this crowded room, everybody getting dirt and twigs in their eyes, and I ask, what is Mark saying to us? What is he trying to teach me here? I remember that I can't answer that question by just looking at these 12 verses and then saying, here's what it means to me. I have to remember what Mark is doing in this, in this whole story so far. So let's review briefly. Let's just look real quickly at what has already happened in chapter 1 to sort of see what Mark is up to. We start with this camel hair wearing John, and he says, this great man is coming who's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. If you think I'm cool, wait till you meet this guy, Jesus. You know, Jesus then enters the scene. This Jesus, whom God calls his beloved son, with whom he is well pleased before Jesus did anything. He's immediately led into the wilderness and tempted. And in that scene, we see this foggy, almost abstracted glimpse. Just, we can peer into this place which is a world beyond our world. Mark invites us to see that where a battle is raging between God and the forces of chaos and evil. And it's Jesus that Mark is having us focus on. What he is intending to do there, what he's doing here in this world. Then the crowds, they gather around him and they're saying, me, 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 me. And Jesus says, yeah, let's get out of here. I didn't come here just to satisfy your temporal desires. My goal was to preach the good news of God, to proclaim a new reality, he says in verse 138. Jesus didn't come to make your dreams come true. He came to make God's dream come true. He came to proclaim a new vision, a hope for life lived forever with Jesus. The focus is on Jesus and what kind of world that he is building Forcing us to ask, do we care? Do we want his life? Or are we still pursuing our own? And then we come to the teaching last week where the leper is involved. 
comes to Jesus for healing. He comes to Jesus wanting to be free from this pain of being disconnected from his community because of his disease. And Jesus heals him. But it's not teaching us to consider what divine products or services God is offering us. It's teaching us to know God's character as one who is powerful and able to shut down the corruption of sin. And so it's helping us so far. Mark has been helping us to see God's character in Jesus. He's a demon crusher. He's a compassionate healer. He's a courageous truth teller. He's loving and forgiving and patient. He's powerful, divine. He's awesome. This is what Mark has so far been helping us to do. The focus is on Jesus and his nature, not on people, on how to get what you want. And you see the theme, don't you? Clearly, this is where Mark's head and heart are at as he writes this gospel out for us. It's something like, more than anything, more than any ruler, more than any power broker you're ever going to meet, people need Jesus. Boom. This is where Mark is clearly going. More than water baptism from another person, people need Jesus. More than a powerful force able to make the government great, people need Jesus. More than physical health, people need Jesus. More than being able to walk, People need Jesus. And people need to know that Jesus forgives their sins. I think that last line really hits us hard. If we're listening carefully to God, you might say, well, why? That sounds great. I think it's because it doesn't make much sense to us. We ask the question, why, or even how? His forgiveness seems out of place. It doesn't compute with the way that we are taught to think early on. We're very cause and effect, action, consequence, you know? Forgiveness seems to step outside of that logic. It seems illogical at that level. I have been conditioned by the world to forgive people once they have changed. I'll forgive you after you say sorry, yeah? Here comes the broken, paralyzed man who can do nothing. <laughs> like literally nothing. He can't even get there on his own. He needs his friends to carry him in. It's an amazing picture. Jesus seems to offer forgiveness before you would expect him to, and it doesn't make sense to us, which is probably why it doesn't really make sense in the story. I mean, as you're reading it, doesn't it kind of catch you off guard a little bit? It totally catches uh, I'm not expecting him to say what he says. You know, hey, I'm paralyzed and I can't walk. Yes, your sons are forgiven. No, I said I'm paralyzed, I can't walk. Your sins are forgiven. <laughs> Great, that's, uh, can we get back to this paralysis problem here? You know, it's just, what is he doing there? I, I think I'm not the only person who thinks that's odd. You know, it's, He's asking for one thing, and Jesus gives him something else. Read it with me again in verse 4. I want to break this down a little bit. They couldn't bring the paralyzed man to Jesus because of the crowd, so they, in the Greek, it's great. They unroofed the roof, you know? I love that language. They unroofed the roof above his head, and they lowered the man down on his mat, right down in front of Jesus. Now, here between the lines, I think you could insert, 
They lowered him down, hoping that Jesus would heal their friend. Indeed, truly trusting that Jesus could and was able to do a miraculous act. I think that's fair. Verse 5, seeing their faith, I think that means the faith of everybody involved, all five of them, the, the paralyzed man and the four guys lowering him down. Seeing the faith of this group of dudes, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. And I'm sure the paralyzed man, I'm not sure, I, th- I like to guess. I think that the paralyzed man looked up at his friends and they all said, huh? And the crowd murmured, what in the world? And they most, as I've mentioned, they most certainly didn't say to themselves, this is so crazy because what does sin have to do with sickness? They would have drawn that connection. But what was so crazy to them? Why were they really shocked? And we see it in the expression of the theological lawyers, the scribes. Well, it was crazy that he would think he could do that. The paralytic and his friends definitely thought that his sickness was the result of somebody's sin, some kind of sin. So Jesus' words aren't totally controversial at that level. The controversy was a human being saying, I can forgive your sins, or being God's agent to do that. And that is a major no-no. Verse 6, but some of the teachers of the religious law who were sitting there, they thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew what they were thinking. And so he gives them this, it's almost cryptic, you know, which is harder to do. This real common way of argumentation in the Jewish world, arguing from lesser to greater. Kind of like, what's, what's most, this is a lesser thing I can do. Can't I then do this, et cetera, et cetera. So they say to him, your sins are, or he says to them, is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or is it easier to say, stand up, pick up your mat and walk? Well, stand up and walk calls for evidence, doesn't it? Tangible, observable evidence. If the guy doesn't walk, you end up looking like a fool. And so if you say, I forgive your sins, you can't really see tangible evidence for that. So what's easier to say? It's easier to say, I forgive you. I forgive your sins. However, which is easier to do? What's the harder thing to do? So it's a lesser to greater argument. And here, it's clearly harder to forgive sins. This is huge in the Jewish mindset. You won't find anything in the Jewish literature of that day, prior to it, afterward, none of it suggests that a human being can do this, even the Messiah. In their mind's eye, there was no way that a human person could say, your sins are forgiven. It just wasn't possible. Dozens of Old Testament prophets have been able to do miraculous healings. It's all over the Old Testament, but nobody has ever come close to declaring sins forgiven as though it was themselves doing the forgiving. It's far more difficult than Jesus is saying to forgive sins. In fact, only God himself can do this. Therefore, I think Jesus is saying, I will say the harder thing and make it happen, you know, the mat, to prove that I can do the harder thing as well, which will be the forgiving of sins. 
I will prove to you that the Son of Man has power or authority on the earth to forgive sins. Notice here, now, on earth. In other words, not just in the end or in the heavens. I have the authority and the power here now on earth to forgive sins. That's profound. Don't forget that. This son of man language that he is appealing to almost certainly comes from Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. And in that context, we're told that one like a son of man will have authority given to him by the ancient of days or by God. Well, what is Jesus doing? By using that term, son of man, he's appealing to a very noteworthy Old Testament prophet or book. And essentially, he's saying to the theological lawyers, the scribes, don't you guys ever read your Bibles? <laughs> you know, this isn't new. I'm not doing anything outside of what the scriptures have already demonstrated. All the way back in Daniel, we understood that there would be a person. There would be a person that God can appoint as his authority to do this kind of work. I'm stepping into the framework of the Old Testament here. You guys should know that above all. But they don't. They're upset. Daniel didn't have a problem with recording God's intention and God's ability to appoint a divine agent to carry out his will. Notice I said a divine agent. Is that what Jesus is? We believe Jesus is fully man and fully God. And that's a complex thing to try to wrestle down in your head. But here Jesus does not say, I forgive your sins, does he? He says it in the passive voice. He says, your sins are forgiven. And in the passive voice, it implies that there is an external or another actor, somebody else who's doing the forgiving. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus is pointing out that he's simply fitting in to that same Old Testament picture in Daniel 7. Therefore, he's not blaspheming. He's not stepping outside of God's truth. In fact, he's fitting squarely within it. You yourselves, I think he is suggesting to them, more than anybody, you should know this is good, what I'm doing, what I'm saying. This is good. This is what God intends for. This is his will. He wants to forgive people. You have to ask yourself, you wonder why they were so upset about it. It's right in the Bible. Jesus is doing this great work. The paralyzed man is healed. The leper is healed. What causes a human being to say, no, 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 that's not correct? Well, I think it's that same thing. It's what happens when we live and identify in guilt and shame. We grow legalistic. And in their mind, there's no way that this could happen according to their rules and statutes and the ways that they had framed up what a godly life was supposed to be like. I think the special thing here is forgiveness combined with healing that helps us to see that Jesus is forgiving sin but notice his forgiveness of sin is pictured to us as a renewal of life all of life and that begins now in your life it's starting to happen as you submit to Jesus and pursue him forgiveness of sin is not just moral guilt it's the reversal of the corruption of the curse we're all still going to die. My wife had knee surgery this week, and it'll help her walk for the next 20 or 40 years, but it'll still go bad, and we'll still go to a grave. That's true. 
But in the deep place of our heart and soul, God is waking us up and changing us into renewed beings who will rise up from the grave and be with him. We've got to trust that that's actually happening now. Because when you think that way and you embrace his forgiveness, you step outside of that bondage of identifying yourself in guilt. You say, all right, there's two great evils here. Disease is one of them. Brokenness, corruption. This is the earth that groans because of evil. And then you have sin, personal sin. That's that brokenness and corruption of a human being. Sin is corrupting the earth. It's corrupting the human being. These are two great evils. And yet, we see here a powerful and present Jesus who is much greater in power. They can't defeat him, and he can defeat them. And you might say, well, all right, pastor, I hear you. That's fantastic. And this is where it really registers for me. He's able, more than able. He can do it. That's fantastic. You might even say, I believe that. But deep down inside, almost so deep that you hardly ever think about it, you might be saying to yourself, does he want to? He can do it. But does he want to forgive a fool like me? Does this great, amazing, beautiful, glorious, and holy God who has no need of anything, is perfectly complete in his being. This God who can speak reality into existence, this ultimate, awesome God, does he, what does he want with somebody so small and foolish and broken like me? Does he actually want to forgive me? I believe he can. I believe he's able. And I believe that he wants to for mostly everybody else. But not me. Because I am worse than mostly everybody else. And you think that way sometimes. I know I do. Sometimes I wonder if we have talked about forgiveness so much that it's actually lost its meaning. Yeah, 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 he forgives sins. All right, what's next? Let's get on to something more interesting. Jesus forgives. All right, good, that's good. We got that in the bank. We as a community absolutely must hear Jesus saying to us, God forgives your sins. Yes, the evil of sin is great. The decay of disease and death is greater. But God's forgiveness is the greater of those two evils, both of them. Forgiveness of sins is what combats evil. Forgiveness, in the Greek, the word afiemi, to let go of. He lets go of these sins that we see as a permanent identity or a permanent record. God lets go of them. And this is what Jesus is saying. God lets go of all of the corruption that you are implicated in. And we're implicated in all of it. Should you be doing more? Probably. But God forgives you. And he says, get up, let's go. Could you have handled everything in your entire life better? <laughs> yes, you could have. Everything you've ever done, you could have done it better. 
I guarantee it. And if you had, you wouldn't have hurt all of those people along the way. But God forgives you. And he says, get up. Let's go. Your sin has an absolute death grip on you. And it corrupts you just like leprosy corrupts skin. Just like paralysis immobilizes you, sin immobilizes you. It freezes you up in life. And I will reverse the effects of sin in your life, says your Savior. I can, I will, and I want to. Beginning right now, and totally completing the work later on, I will proclaim to you that your sins are forgiven, Jesus says. Your role right now, then, is to live like a forgiven Christian, humbly knowing that you are broken, deeply believing that you are forgiven, and fearlessly living for Jesus in every way. The thing, the thing that curses you with guilt about everything, deep in your might, in your mind, and in your heart and soul is sin. That is the curse deep in there. And all the pretending and all the outward displays of your own fake goodness are nothing. Your sin is causing you, it's causing us to be paralyzed with fear about the election. That does not stem from faith in Jesus Christ, by the way, that fear. That fear stems from sin. Your sin makes you terrified about discomforts. Your sin keeps you quiet about Jesus, and it's causing you to be bitter. It's causing you to lie and to hide and to deny reality. And right when Jesus opens up the door to look in at your reality with you, he does not quickly slam the door and say, oh my goodness, whoa, (laughs) 13, I knew you were messed up, but this is crazy. (laughs) You're, You're beyond hope, son. You know, good luck. He doesn't say that. No, he says, my son, my daughter, I know everything that's in your heart. I know everything on your permanent record. I know all of the love that you have and all of your hate. I know all of the respect that you show. And I know all of the pride. I know all of the admiration that you have for others. And I know all of the lust. I know all of your generosity. And I know all of your greed. Your sins are forgiven. By God, here, on earth, now. So quit acting like they're not. And get up and move. Rather than hoping that our faith is strong enough, rather than hoping for all all of the things we think we need, in Christ alone our hope is found. He's our light, our strength, and our song. This is the Savior who took on flesh, yeah, in helpless babe. And he was scorned by the ones he came to save, you and me. 
So often he says, I forgive you. And we say, no, no, that's not enough. I need to do more. You're not quite right, Jesus. I scorn you. Scorned by the ones he came to save. May we never be ones who scorn him or reject his invitation to live in his life. And with this great forgiveness, sin's curse has lost its grip on us because we are his and he is ours. And we were bought with the precious blood of Christ so that we have no guilt in life. We are forgiven and we have no fear in death. He is greater than the corruption of sickness and he is greater than the evil of death. So we're going to set up the final segment of our worship now and come to these tables to take communion. Come to these tables receiving Jesus' forgiveness. Come to them remembering what he's done and acknowledging it deep inside your soul. It will push against the corruption that's there. He is bringing life into us. Remember his goodness toward you. Come and shed the guilt and the shame and the fear and the powerful sickness of sin so that you can receive the gift, the powerful grace of your loving creator. Okay? I'm going to pray for you and then let's worship Jesus. Let's receive communion together. If you have those in your row who are unable to walk, please use the plates to serve communion to them. You come up as couples, as families, as individuals, as groups of friends, however you want to do it. Feel the freedom to worship and approach this table humbly and thankfully because of Jesus. Pray with me. Father, we love you and we're thankful. We do. We're very thankful for our life. And we don't just mean our beating hearts and our blinking eyes. We mean this crazy, awesome thing <laughs> that is called existence. To exist in your world, to be people, to love one another and to get to know you. It's a great treasure and we're thankful. We can all, God, every man and woman and child in this room, we can look at the way that we have taken your great gift of life and just mangled it. And I pray, God, as a pastor, and more so as a brother, to all of my brothers and sisters here, I pray that on, on behalf of everybody in this room, that you would have mercy, that you would continue to forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us. Help us to become your people who are not gripped in fear but instead live as forgiven Christians. You are so great and greatly to be praised. May our worship now reflect that. Amen.